0: going live she's now live super excited for fanny fang to come on today let us add joey
1: hey joey how you doing i'm good how are you doing oh another week (laughs) happy to be here you know Exactly. Hey
0: everyone, welcome to Plum Radio. We are a weekly Instagram live show that covers
1: news, pop culture, and politics from an Asian perspective.
0: I'm your host, Dolly Lee. This is my co-host, Joey Yang.
1: Hi everyone, congrats on surviving another week.
0: Another week. This is episode 19 of Plum Radio, and we have a really awesome guest today. Fanny Fang, all the way from Manhattan, Kansas. Fanny is a 25-year-old uh, candidate running for Riley County Commission in District 2. So Fannie is someone who actually grew up in Manhattan, Kansas. She grew up in her parents' store, the Asian market. It's an international supermarket in Kansas. One of the few in Manhattan, Kansas that offers groceries and supplies from over a hundred different countries. And she was actually inspired to run for office after the incumbent commissioner, Marvin Rodriguez, made this racist comment that people in Kansas aren't gonna be getting coronavirus because there aren't that many Chinese people in Kansas. Yes, facepalm, facepalm, facepalm. It turns out the virus does not care what race or country you're from. So, racism has no place anywhere in this country. And after this, Fannie was inspired to run for office, but she does come from a history of community organizing and really has worked a lot of her life to support the community of Manhattan, Kansas. So we'll hear more from Fannie in about 20 minutes. She is actually the only female and Democratic candidate running for this position. She's running against three Republican men. So cannot wait to hear more from her. Make sure you drop comments for Fannie in the comments below. And before we get to Fannie, Let's talk about the bizarre series of events that have happened this week besides the DNC. Oh,
1: gosh. Oh, man. Oh, that. The, I'm the sure Democrats we're also. The a conference?
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm not sure whose minds it changed, right? Like, oh, were you
1: not going to vote for Biden before this bizarre DNC? <laughs> All the war criminals who are tuned into the DNC are like, oh, yeah, maybe I should yeah. vote for Joe Biden. And Andrew Yang
0: whined his way into having
1: a little, a little spot. Good <laughs> he really did Andrew Yang. representation <laughs> matters, you know, you guys. We got we got lots of juicy stuff for you coming up on this episode, and you won't want to miss our interview with Fanny. So go ahead and hit that share button. Smash that share button right yes. there and send, send this to a couple this of friends. To at least
0: one friend, do do that due diligence. Send this Instagram live to one of your friends.
1: Oh, so so this week, Tell what happened about besides the, the DMZ... <laughs> Steve Bannon was arrested. Wow, another white guy, uh, fascist, was arrested.
0: Number one one China Uh, fearmonger along with Mike Pompeo. Uh huh.
1: And he was arrested for fraud with help from, wait for it, the post office. That's right, the US Postal Service. Back the blue, as they say. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Fun fact, fun fact, which I didn't know. Apparently, the US Postal Inspection Service are America's original cops. That's right, the, America's mm. first law enforcement agency. Uh, they were Defund created police to fund the postal <laughs> service. Hey. Uh, they were created to audit postal accounts and investigate theft of mail and postal funds, which is why they were in, investigating Bannon's organization, which is called We Build the Wall, <laughs> which raised $25 million from Trump supporters to build the wall, but with private money. Uh, from snips. which he from which he devised a scheme, yes, $25 million, from which he devised a scheme to direct money siphoned from We Build the Wall to his own pockets through a nonprofit and a shell company using bogus invoices and sham vendor agreements. But big surprise, the story goes deeper than that.
0: Yeah, the Steve Bannon. So it turns out when Steve Bannon was arrested, He was actually arrested while on a $35 million yacht with, get this, Guo Gui, whom you may have seen this New York Times write up about him in 2018. He is an exiled Chinese bajillionaire just tycoon of china he was the 73rd richest guy there and was accused of money laundering fraud um, all types of kidnapping and rape the chinese government obviously went after him and he fled to the united states and when he fled to the united states Trump actually refused to deport him when he found out that he was a member of Mar-a-Lago. Dun, dun, dun. Oh the plot thickens with this really, really bizarre event. But what does it even mean to be like a member of Mar-a-Lago? Uh,
1: if you're a member of Mar-a-Lago, it means that you can hang out with the president and wash his balls, uh, you know, his golf balls, uh, which, you know, because sometimes the balls get a little dirty when you hit them with the stick. I mean... Uh, here, let's try. Let's show you guys a screenshot of this. So, you see this? Oh,
0: this is it, doesn't show up that well. Oh, wow. this guy, so he and Steve Bannon are buddies. And this guy on the right, so that's, that's Miles Guo. He claims to be a political activist whistleblower from China, which is not so, it's not very certain what happened there. And in 2015, Chai Xin, which is one of the few, I would say, the closest thing that China has to like a political watchdog newspaper, it was started by a woman, Hu Shuli. And they really approach things from a very business and economic standpoint to where she's able to hold people accountable. And the Chinese government has tried to shut her paper down, Chai Xin, that's C A I X I N, multiple times, but she has prevailed and she exposed him in this deep investigation um, back in 2015. And this is what eventually led to his, at least the Chinese government, trying to arrest him on corruption. Um, You can actually read a lot more about this. I recommend the book. The Age of Ambition by Evan Osnos, one of the few white correspondents I trust. He was a former Beijing correspondent of The New Yorker. And in his book, The Age of Ambition, he follows Hu Shuli's journey to start Chai Xin and all the trouble that she went through with the government to basically expose the truth. Right, And her paper became known for exposing really wealthy businessmen and politicians who were stealing money. Once Miles Guo got to the United States, he purchased an $82 million Central Park apartment to commit himself to exile because he was a persecuted person of China. So here's a glimpse at his beautiful apartment. See these views? This is him in exile in his $80 million home. Do you see this? Look at that. So this man is buddies with Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was caught on his yacht and this is what we're dealing with. Mar-a-Lago, Steve Bannon, they're all in the same boat. One grifter deserves another, I guess. Right? And so with Steve Bannon's help, Miles Guo actually started this thing called G News, which is, I guess, his attempt at making Breitbart. <laughs> and he's really-
1: Breitbart, child. a.k.a. B News. <laughs>
0: it's mostly <laughs> just his blog. It's his blog of things that he's interested in. And a lot of it is just about, you know, C. Let's see if we can, can show you guys some of these. It's his blog where he talks about how Steve Bannon got arrested, um, all types of stuff, let us see. This is a new thing that we're trying out to try and show some of these screen shares. Check out this technology, by the way. <laughs> Amazing technology. Look, you can screen share in Instagram Live. So I can't find that. But apparently in GTV Media Group, that's the owner of G News. They got investigated by the New York State Attorney General, by the FBI, and by the SEC for a $300 million private investment offering, which came with help from Steve Bannon.
1: Done. Done. dun. dun, dun. Uh-huh. The plot thickens, uh, and and apparently this year in June, uh, the two of them, Gua and Bannon, uh, attempted on the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre to establish, quote-unquote, the new federal state of China, which is a self-declared government in exile of China, and the way they did it was by hiring private planes to fly a banner around Manhattan congratulating them on establishing the new federal state of China. <laughs>
0: this is, can you imagine? This is like the new, new, new Taiwan, established by Steve
1: Bannon. Man, Manhattan, known otherwise as New Taiwan. And the other Re- the, other, the, the other renegade island.
0: <laughs> I mean, why why are we even talking about, talking about this? Why does this matter? I mean, the reality is Steve Bannon is a really smart man. I mean, he helped to get this president elected. He is a media connoisseur. He really knows how to manipulate the public and public opinion. And he is deeply connected to this guy who is a corrupt bajillionaire who is protected by this president because he's a member of Mar-a-Lago. None of this, this, I feel like we're, we're reading an Onion article, but we're not. This is the reality that we're living in it's unbelievable. And all of this because Steve Bannon was taking money from the build a wall (laughs) foundation.
1: Well, you know, if you want to, as they say, if you want to keep from getting deported, just send the president a couple thousand bucks every month and and try to wash his balls. Uh, That's yeah. That's the way you can keep from getting deported in America. Mental note.
0: Okay. Oh my God. It's so crazy. If you guys look up this New York Times article from 2018 when they covered Miles, I mean, it's he claims to be a whistleblower. So now he's claiming that he's exposing other corrupt Chinese bajillionaires. Yet he and Steve Bannon were on this $30 million yacht. Yet he has his $80 million New York City home. Yet they're establishing the new federal state of China. So it's, it just shows how ch- the conversation of China is just another pawn in these people's political play of like, who gets... To be a Mar-a-Lago buddy buddy who gets to be friends with Steve Bannon, who gets to create a media outlet, who gets to control public opinion. It's
1: wild. Yeah, that's money and power for you. So Ugh. Ugh. anyway, so, so yeah. yeah, we'll be we'll be, be, following, we'll be this. following this story because uh, it <laughs> it is it is both unexpected and also entirely expected. So we'll be Which keeping an so eye bizarre. on this one here at so, Plum Radio. So bizarre.
0: But yes, before before we get to Fanny, Fanny will be joining us in just a few minutes. Let us do our weekly segment, our whole and blessing of the week.
1: Oh, so I gotta I gotta admit, um, so you know, the whole the whole gets bigger every week. And uh last week, what we thought was a blessing, you know, I was awoken Bless. to the sounds of rain uh last week. And, you know, I thought, yeah, okay, rain's a blessing. All well, it turns out all the lightning that came with that rain. Uh, set about half the state of California on fire. There are fires burning in Marin, east of San Jose, and in Santa Cruz, which are respectively the second, third, and seventh largest fires in California state history. That's so scary. That's <sighs> um, so scary. Yeah, in 2020, things that we think are blessings are actually curses. What do you know? How was is, how is the air quality? Terrible, Those obviously. terrible. you guys are
0: in the bay. You guys are right there in Oakland. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, what? good thing we. Well, you know, what did you go through? Like, what was it like? Well, you know, it's funny when when the mask orders start first started happening uh, this year for COVID. Most of the masks that people had were N95 masks because mm-hmm. of previous wildfire seasons where you know for right. weeks at a time you'd be unable to breathe just you know the normal air that comes through, and of course you see videos of uh, farm workers who are you know picking the food that we eat. Uh, and there's like smoke and fire billowing overhead. So, you know, as as, yeah. bad as as bad as it is for for most people in the Bay Area, there are folks who are working outside.
0: Including Scott Chang Fleeman, our guest on episode eight. You can see on Shaoshan Farms that they weren't able to do their CSA this week. You see in the background of the farm in Bellina, there's billowing smoke and... It's scary. I still remember, you know, the last year that I lived in Oakland in 2017. Yes, 2017, that was when there were uh, fires up in Napa, which is still like an hour and a half north of Oakland. And I woke up in the middle of the night smelling smoke and freaking out, thinking that my house is on fire. That's how close that air is. Right. And And I ran out of my bed thinking, like, why didn't the fire alarms go off? But it turns out that was just smoke from the Northern California fire. So air quality has been awful
1: yeah and uh there are reports that now there are there is not enough prison labor to fight the state's worst wildfire season ever because the global pandemic which ran rampant in california's prisons infecting thousands and thousands of prisoners knocked out a couple of the prison firefighter squads in california Apparently, California so has up. 77 crews of inmates who are firefighters who get paid between two and five dollars a day, plus oh my God. one dollar an oh my hour, God, profusely, plus a oh dollar an hour for the time where they're fighting the fires. Um, and it turns out prisoners make up about 40 percent of the state's wildfire crews. And of course, it's almost impossible for these inmate firefighters to get jobs in fire departments after they're released because most fire departments won't hire felons. For most firefighting jobs, you need EMT certification and you can't get EMT certified if you've had a felony in the state of California in the last 10 years. So again, when we're following the money, the state of California admits that the inmate firefighter program saves the state of California $100 million a year. Wow. Because... The free market is never wrong, are we?
0: You know, when we know figures like this, when we know that 40% of the firefighting force is inmates, when we know that it's saving California $100 million a year, how could we deny that our prison system is modern slavery? I mean, it's appalling that when, you know, prisoners are now, because of the close quarters that they live in, they're all falling ill to COVID, that because they're all ill, they can't be the slave labor that we depend on to put out fires in California that are just ravaging the state. And as proven by our current federal government, that we can't rely on the federal government to send help. I mean, Trump has said before during previous California fires that California should just burn. That's the amount of antagonism and hate that he has Towards the state of California, towards these more liberal cities or liberal places in which people live. The fact that we're even in this mess is just a horrifying, horrifying example of what the US has done to the black and brown community by putting so many people in prison. Joey and I have actually been reading this book with our good friend, Dr. Adrian DeLeon, and shout out to Adrian, who was our actually second guest ever on the show. Prof. Adrian uh, has been reading Golden Gulag by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. This is a really eye-opening book. Um, we've been learning a lot through this book about the California prison system specifically. And Ruth Wilson Gilmore wrote this book after she had followed these mothers who were trying to really change the California prison system after seeing how corrupt and overrun it was and just how bloated it is. Like For people who don't know, California has more inmates than any other prison population in all of the United States. It's truly an industry.
1: Yeah, and with so much talk about abolition these days, you know, if prison is supposed to be the place where you go to get rehabilitated, where you go to pay your debt to society, if you've been going and putting your body on the line fighting these fires by, by the way, after which you've received practical on the job training, once you go to prison and you've paid your debt back to society and you've put your body in the way of these wildfires, you know, but you still can't get a job after, you know, it, will, will society ever accept you back at all? If you go to prison, right. is, is there any chance for you after you've come out? Right. Um,
0: and the danger so. that you put your, I mean, shout out to our friends who are firefighters in California. Our friends like Stacy, who just every shout single out year. Joel. Shout out to mm-hmm. Joel and Stacy, who are both, you know, Joel's an Oakland firefighter. Stacy is an on call wildfire firefighter. Every single year, she gets called out to put out fires that are all over California. And I mean, she's one of the first people who told me about the number of prisoners that are involved in the system of firefighting.
1: So, just some food for thought. As we get into our blessing of the week, we'll yes. go ahead and bless this show after all these Let's curses. Bless this show,
0: bless uh, California, bless the show so that we can so welcome, we can welcome Fanny, Fanny on. And Fanny, give us some hope about the future of this. <laughs> A small country
1: <laughs> why don't we uh, dolly why don't you kick us off with a quick blessing let's
0: do yes quick blessing so our blessing comes all the way from the other side of the world uh and it's not miles guo our blessing from the other side of the world wuhan as you guys may have seen in some tiktok and twitter viral videos they are basically doing a Las Vegas swimming pool EDM. Yes. And away, <laughs> pretty much just EDM raving. And this is what happens when we care for people in our society in a way where we, you know, we wear our masks and we actually have a functioning government that will help with you know, taking care of this coronavirus and making sure people don't get sick right like i look forward to the day where i can go to a swimming pool edm i don't even listen to edm but you know what that sounds <laughs> great right now yeah
1: yeah I, that sounds great you know caring for your neighbors caring for your fellow citizens right, wearing so a so mask we having some sort of collective EDM responsibility sooner. so you can party but <laughs> i want to party you know, unfortunately that's not the case here
0: and we not the only place society. that's now mm. coming back to life
1: Yeah, earlier this month, uh, pop star Eric Do held a 10,000 person indoor full capacity concert in Taipei. In Taiwan, most COVID-19 restrictions were lifted in early June after Taiwan recorded eight weeks of no new locally transmitted cases. That's, by the way, if you're keeping track, that's no new cases since the middle of April. That's almost four months ago
0: in april uh, we're in, still debating that But in april the president was still not wearing a mask
1: yeah in case you were wondering how things were going in a uh, in a functioning society that's how that's how things are that's how, how, how things are going so so blessings blessings from taiwan blessings from
0: wuhan people clearly are thriving and living so bring us some blessings let us bless the show to bring fanny on so I like that, that blessing
1: hear. Like that blessing, Dolly, I'm going to say thank you. We'll see you next week. And I'm going to get out of the way so we can bring Fanny on so she can uh, give us a little hope. (laughs) Give us a little hope. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for tuning in. Don't go anywhere. See you next week, Joey. Yeah.
0: So everyone, we are about to welcome on Fanny Fang. Make sure you send this Instagram live to at least one of your friends. And here is Fanny joining us right now
2: hey fanny what's up nice
0: to see you
2: yeah good to see you too i was just i listened to the whole (laughs) pre-show you got me pumped
0: yes yes yes. welcome onto plum radio fanny Everyone, Fannie Fang is running for Riley County Commissioner in District 2. And she is a 25-year-old candidate who grew up in Manhattan, Kansas, in her parents' supermarket called the Asian Supermarket, which has over 100 different countries represented in their aisles. And Fanny, we are so excited to talk to you for many different reasons. You know, Of course, we wanna learn from local grassroots politicians who are really doing the work on the ground to change the system. Um, so Fanny, please start us off with telling us why you decided to run for Riley County Commissioner.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is a question that I've been asked a lot and, that, and the answer to it has evolved a lot mm-hmm. throughout the four months since I announced my candidacy. And from the outside looking in, there are a lot of people who see it as like, oh, this is a young Asian American woman who's just pissed off at the world and just wants mm. to retaliate towards a local politician who sits on the racist. And I can understand, you know, how some people may come to that conclusion if they don't know my story. But the truth is, and I think this is the case for a lot of Asian Americans, this has been bubbling for years, probably Mm. for our entire lives. So like my parents came into this country under the belief that they had an equal opportunity to have a life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, right That is in the Declaration of Independence in this country. And so they give up their entire culture, their family, their comfort zone to come to this country that says, "Hey, we are here to support you. And when they get Man. here, my dad, he went from you know being living in a house with his parents and his family to a house of strangers, 10 people, you know in the small apartment in New York City, and that's what he thought he had to do to be able to earn that opportunity that was promised to them and to many immigrants Mm -hmm. and you know and but they never complained my parents never ever complained about these issues they did what many immigrant parents did they just worked their butts off for their kids this is such a typical
0: story we hear from immigrant families too you know they never complain are generally politically not involved right Mm -hmm. and that's why we never hear from them.
2: Yep, exactly. And like, and I, and don't get me wrong. Like, I'm incredibly grateful for this life I have for the sacrifices my parents uh, have made for me. But for me, something that my parents taught me growing up is, you cannot be a hypocrite. If you mm. say you're going to do something, then you're going to do it. Mm. And this country has not held itself accountable for its promises, and they continue to either live that lie you know, continue to push that lie or they just pretend that promise was never there.
0: So Fanny, going, going to, you know, the incident that sparked you running for commissioner, you know, I, I want to give people some context as to what is this promise that, you know, immigrant families like yours believe in and what is the reality, right? So can you tell me about the incumbent person that you are running against and what happened?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So When the first case of COVID entered our community here in Riley County, just like across the country, everyone went crazy. I mean, like Mm. people were were in in panic mode. And so being a grocery store, we had this influx of people coming in. First, it was like our current customers. And there were also people who couldn't find rice in like major supermarkets. So Mm. they decided to come.
0: Were these just Asian customers? And are there a lot of Asian people in Manhattan, Kansas? So statistically, there's about 6% of Asians in Riley County,
2: which is a lot considering where we are mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of Kansas. Um, and, and a big part of that is because we have Fort Riley and Kansas State University, a major gotcha. research university. And so we got the Asian customers. Um, and as you said, Dolly, we have products from all over the world. So it's not just Asians. We also have like African, Jamaican, and across all these different cultures, rice is a staple. Right. And so all of our uh, existing customers and new customers coming in, trying to buy 50, a hundred pounds of rice. And when we put a limit on it, you know, like people would bring their family, just a van of their family members to try wow. to get our I mean, and I don't blame anyone. Cause like, right. time. I remember
0: yes. Toilet paper, rice, beans, exactly. beans.
2: Exactly. And so we were at the forefront of this panic and not only did, You know, as a business, not only did we have to manage, you know, our own emotions, we had to manage the emotions of these of of our customers and trying to explain to them why we have these limits and why we're doing what we're doing and things like that. And while all of this is happening, I mean, it was already really difficult for us. And then, bam, Marvin Rodriguez, the incumbent commissioner, he said that he said those racist comments about how Wright County is less susceptible to the coronavirus because there's not a large Asian population here. And to be honest with you, I was like, you know what? This is not the first time I've heard
0: something like this in this community but it's this is, ignorant, you know, Exactly. it's actually spreading misinformation because as we all know now, a virus does not, it does not care for what race, what country, what nationality, what ethnicity or gender that you come from.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so at that time I was like, okay, I got to take care of my family. I've got to take care of my community. The way I know how to do that is to be able to provide food. That is what I'm good at. That's what I've been focused on. Let me just focus on that. So mm-hmm. what I, what my family and I decided to do was decided to write a, a statement for the Asian market and let people know how we were feeling about it. But then a, uh, an organization called Manhattan Alliance for Peace and Justice reached out to me and asked me if I would be willing to make a public comment at the next county commission meeting. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, I think that is exactly what I needed, that feeling of support, especially support from white people. Mm. Like, and that, because by then right like that was march when all this happened by then like i had already many of us asians had already been exposed mm. to the hate crimes that were happening across the country so it's scary you know it's, it's why, scary. why is it important
0: to have these white allies
2: they they have the power the way our systems are currently set up they have the power and even though you know, we had a black president. It's very clear that even then, that does not mean that there's going to be a change. And so having wh- white allies gives us, in a way, protection, mm-hmm. you know, and and that's just the truth.
0: And Riley County home. is what, eight, over 80 percent white.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And and that's just how our country is set up. And. And what's been incredible in working with the Asian market is that I know that there are white people who support me. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if there wasn't a strong support for diversity, for Asians in this community, my business, my family business would not have lasted for the 10 years and has been tremendously successful. And so mm-hmm. when Manhattan Alliance for Peace and Justice, uh, the acronym is MapJ, when they reached out to me, I was like, okay, let's have a conversation. I still was not committed. But I was like, let's have a conversation and see where it goes. And what, the moment I had that Zoom call, the question they asked me was, "Fanny, what do you want out of this? Mm-hmm. And that is a question that is not often asked. And that is where I get a little bit worried when white people reach out to me. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times there's also an ulterior motive to it, whether they recognize it or not. Sometimes hmm. it sometimes feels like tokenism. Mm. Uh, sometimes it feels like they're just trying to check a box, or they think it's a trend right now. Like it's a popular thing to do right, right, now. right. right. You know, we're we're seeing that with the Black Lives Matter movement right now. Like right. all of a sudden, you know, the protests no longer get the media coverage. No one talks about it anymore, but it's still right. happening. Right, right. And so I'm always very skeptical. But the moment they ask me that question what do you want out of this family? I was like, I am committed to working with you. And so I made my public comment and, and it, was, uh, it was a very emotional public comment. I don't think, I was not prepared to just mm-hmm. kind of bare my soul out there talking about being 10 years old and having my first racist encounter. And that was when I realized that there was something different about me. And then coming home and now being at the time 24, now I'm 25, coming home and now seeing a local politician reiterating these, these mm. this racism
0: you know and now in the middle right. of COVID, from the very community that you and your family have been feeding for over exactly. a decade
2: exactly right. and and now in covid where there is this there is this perception of of oh if you're asian you you inherently have covid right mm. this mm-hmm. this idea this this racist idea like it's terrifying because the county commission is
0: also the health board
2: and is so, it okay? Can, yeah. can
0: you tell us a bit more about what that's the what the county commissioner's role is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the county commission, a lot of their authority we've, uh, revolves around land use. So mm. they set property taxes and zoning regulations, things like that. That's a um,
0: huge, huge responsibility, especially when absolutely. you think about agriculture or voting.
2: Yes, absolutely. And then low-income low housing, like mm-hmm. when just in general, housing and, and business districts, things like that, they play a very pivotal role. But now with COVID, the reason why they're getting a lot more attention is because here in Riley County, they are also the health board. What that means is, is that they get to accept or deny recommendations from the local health officer. Now, the local health officer, she does have some authority where she doesn't have to go through the county commissioners to be able to say I'm going to do this, such as closing uh, bars or restaurants Mm. that have not been following the order. So she is like the enforcement entity, but when it comes to writing the local health order, that has to go through the county commissioners and they Mm. get to say, yes, this can be there. No, it cannot. And for some time, the local health officer was strongly recommending masks, which I was against. So I've been very vocal about that. But recently. She changed her mind and said, "We need to require a mask mandate countywide." Sorry,
0: can you clarify? You said that yep. you were against the suggestion, which means so you were you for required masks?
2: Yes, okay. I was. I was for required masks. I I was very disappointed that our local public health officer mm. uh, only wanted to be strong, only strongly recommending it. Uh, but eventually, just a few weeks ago, she changed her mind and wanted to require it. But the county commissioners three to zero. So there's three county commissioners. They Mm. denied it. They rejected it. And so she has no choice but to strongly recommend it.
0: Wow. Um, Wow. What What do you think is the danger of putting that message out there from these commissioners?
2: That science does not matter. And that is what we are seeing across the country, that they are clearly not listening to the experts and that they are going to prioritize their politics over people. And here's the part that has, since we spoke on Monday, Mm -hmm. a new development has happened. We've had Mm. two new outbreaks in Riley County. One is in rural Riley County, northern Riley County. And up until this point, the county commissioners have been using rural Riley County as a reason to not have a countywide mask mandate. They've been saying, well, the city of Manhattan, which has 50,000 people, also a significant portion of the 75,000 here in Riley County, Uh, they have passed their mask mandate. So the County commissioners were thinking, well, if the city of Manhattan requires it, then all that's left is rural Riley County. And, you know, there, there's not a lot of people out there, so we don't have to worry about it. Well Mm. now there is an outbreak in rural Riley County at a school district at a school district. And, and I just think about like with schools, reopening K-State just reopened. and that Kansas State, K- yes. K- mm-hmm. Kansas State University. And there was already an outbreak there at a fraternity house. And then wow. now with elementary and, and middle school and high school opening back up and there being an outbreak, how are we supposed to take care of our kids if we can't even do the basic, if we can't get past our politics and wear a mask? You can't say wow. that you want schools to reopen, that you are doing this for the economy, for the people when you can't even sacrifice just a little bit to wear a clock over your face.
0: Yeah, that is really scary. As you know, K-State is a huge school, Kansas State, massive school. As you were telling us, they recently had a huge football game where they allowed tens of thousands of people to be there. No mask requirement from these three commissioners. That is just jeopardizing the people of Riley County's health.
2: Yeah, so they haven't had the football game just yet. Mm -hmm. They haven't had the football game yet. Just yet. But yes, the board of commissioners allowed them to go past the 2,000 attendance mark to have 12,500 people. And the thing is, is that if the county commissioners had required masks back in March or April, we could have had football games. Right. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) If we were thinking about the greater good of all the people.
2: (laughs) exactly which and the thing is is like here especially in riley county we need to have football games we Mm. actually need to have those games if our local economy is going to survive because our economy the way it's set up it's so dependent on kansas state university on fort riley and Mm. so it is a difficult decision to be made but we should have never gotten to this point where we're still having this conversation of how dangerous football is because if we had just over the summer When students left, if we had just gotten our shit together, Mm -hmm. our shit Mm -hmm. together and just wore masks, we would have had a lot of issues solved and we would have had a plan. There's still no plan because our
0: commissioners continue to prioritize their politics. So tell me, Fanny, what would your plan be? How would you do things differently if you were to sit in this position of Riley County Commissioner?
2: Yeah, so I talk a lot about this mass mandate, um, and so obviously I would institute a mass mandate, but that is simply a band aid to the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, why are there people in power against the mass mandate, and why do they prioritize their individual values over the collective good? And that is a conversation that we need to have, not only here in Riley County, but across the country, mm-hmm. right? And so for me. There are a lot of policy decisions that have to be made that may address some of these things short-term, but long-term is about fundamentally transforming the structure of our county government so that it does prioritize people over politics to be human first. And so when I started this journey as a candidate for public office, I had an incredible group of people, experts at Kansas State, people who have lived here for over 20 years you know, who were on my team helping me develop policy issues. Mm -hmm. And that was probably like a two-month process. And there were five different areas we focused on, which were food insecurity, housing insecurity, economic insecurity, legal equity, and health equity. And I am so excited that if I were to be elected to be able to implement, hopefully, some of those recommendations, because they have been vetted not only by experts, but by people who live here Mm. and are impacted every day, but what I also discovered was that there are some common denominators across all these different issues, and that is there's still not enough access to county government for the majority of residents, and that the representation in our county government from the employees to advisory boards, is it does not reflect who actually lives here. And right. so when I get into office, my hope is that we can increase access to county government, and that means having a mechanism for online public comment, having meetings Mm. at 7 p.m. instead of 8.30 a.m. when people are are at work, making sure that important documents that county government distributes are in different languages. Mm -hmm. And then with with increased representation, making sure that we actually do outreach to different uh, constituencies and say, hey, there is an opportunity on this on the law board Would you be interested actually going out to these people and saying this opportunity exists rather than thinking they're gonna come to us? And that is the problem. And and I think this is across the country. Government just has become very passive. It Mm. needs to be more proactive if they want to have a government that truly represents the people. So those are just some things that I hope to do.
0: Now, Fanny, who are the people of your community and why do you think you are qualified to serve them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this community first is incredibly uh, transient because the two, you know, two of the major entities that bring people in are Fort Riley, so soldiers, mm-hmm. and Kansas State, which are students. Both populations are very young. You've got mm-hmm. like between eighteen and twenty-five year olds. In fact, the average age of, of a Riley County resident is twenty-five.
0: Oh, that's I super just, young. You, yeah, you I just turned 20
2: twenty-five, <laughs> right? And so not only can I speak to the experience of being a 25 year old right now, I inherently have to be invested in my future. You know what I mean? Like, and because I have to be invested in the future, I have to be invested in my community's future because what happens here is going to dictate the opportunities that are available to me, to my future family, to my friends, to my neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot more at stake for me than frankly, a white 75 year old male, Mm -hmm. that's just the truth. There is a lot more at stake. And because there's more at stake, as we've seen with COVID, when we're back up against a corner, two things happen. Either we crumble under the pressure or we excel or the Mm. best comes out of us. And I've seen that in this community. And I want to be able to amplify those voices and be inspired from all this and have it reflect in our county government
0: right and tell me about how growing up in the asian market informs your experience of working with your community of community organizing what is your supermarket's role in manhattan kansas
2: so my background my educational background so i was raised here and then i went to new york university and studied sports business the other manhattan <laughs> the other manhattan, the big apple from exactly. manhattan to manhattan exactly I went out there looking to go into the sports world um, and that's a whole nother you know conversation that we can d- dive into uh, but I say that to say that I wanted to go into sports I wanted to go into corporate sports and use that as my vehicle to uh, to to make change happen in in the world mm-hmm. uh, but when I came back after I graduated in December of 2018 there were a few things I noticed one was well there were personal health issues in my family so I felt as being a a Chinese person, family is first. Mm -hmm. And so I was pulled to come back. The other thing is is that I saw how this community had evolved since I had left. Mm -hmm. And for the first time probably ever in my life, I felt like Manhattan, Kansas is ready for change. Mm -hmm. The third thing then Mm -hmm. was I was like, but who is going to spearhead this change? you know, cause I can see that residents wanted, but I didn't necessarily feel like businesses represented that urgency for change or that our government. And this is me speaking now, but at the time it was more on the business side. I was like, there is a need here from not only ethnic communities, but from white community as well, wanting to learn more about different cultures. And here I am with a business that can address that. Mm. Now, in hindsight, the other thing that drove me to really hone in on this path is because I remember back when I was 10 years old, one of my favorite drinks was Yeo soy
0: milk. Yes, I love that Yeo soy the milk.
2: milk. <laughs> yeah, they they recently rebranded the can. I feel kind of <laughs> angry about it because I'm like, hey, come on now. Mm-hmm. But that was my favorite drink. And I remember being so excited to go, uh, going to school to show it to my, to my classmates. I was like, "Man, this is such a cool thing." Yeah. And when I shared it with one of my classmates, he said, "Oh, that's disgusting." And that's at awful. Ten, and at 10 years old to hear that, I mean, that's traumatizing because I've kept that with me for so long. And so now what I'm trying to do with the Asian market is for it to become a bridge to that gap, the disconnect. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the other thing is, is that I also have a lot of empathy for those who may think certain foods are weird or disgusting. Right. Most of the time, there are people who have never had the opportunity to go outside the state border of Kansas.
0: Right, y- right. You know,
2: and so for me, in the last two years since I've been here, it has been a mission of mine to help people explore the world in 15 minutes at the Asian market. Mm-hmm. And to, and to also say, look, we are different. That is a fact, but there are ways that we can come together and see the similarities. And one way is through food. And one of my proudest moments is working at the store and seeing a white person walk in with an ethnic person, because I wish I had that when I was growing up Mm -hmm. here and I didn't have that. And so uh, that is the role of the Asian market is to continue to be that bridge for for white people who may be who may feel scared to come into into this unfamiliar right. place, and for ethnic people to feel like they belong here,
0: right, and right.
2: then hopefully encouraging both both groups to say, "Hey, let's meet at the middle, and that's the Asian market."
0: And I think it's really commendable, honestly, that you had gone to school in New York and you also chose to return to your hometown. I think we often do not get to hear from Asian Americans who live outside of New York or California, outside of major coastal cities. Right? And to, you know, I, I'm sure your parents also had their reasons for ending up in Manhattan, Kansas. So I'm very curious to hear about how your family ended up there and why you also decided to return.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my parents, both of them were born and raised in rural China, specifically Fujio, mm-hmm. Fujian. Mm-hmm. My parents actually uh, lived in like neighboring villages, but they didn't meet until they came to the United States. So Oh, uh, impressive. <laughs> <laughs> both my parents, I mean, they wanted to come here for the American dream, for, the opp- for opportunities that at the time China was not providing, less because of like race and more because of socioeconomic class. You know, they mm-hmm. were very poor and... They didn't. And to work their way up that that ladder is is, you know, I'm just thinking back in like 1966, 1970, how difficult it would have been for them to to work their way up into the cities and whatnot. And so uh, my dad came into this country in 1988. He was an entrepreneur from the very beginning. He was also kind of the black sheep of the family, Hmm. which in a way I can relate to. uh, And I'll go into that some more but my dad always wanted to be an artist and at you know, like he would literally make his own painting materials. Yeah. Uh, Cause you know, and you know, actually, so he, I don't know if we
0: mentioned this, but my dad actually also really wanted to be an artist growing up as well. So they have that in common.
2: Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, life demanded him to be more focused on making money because that yeah. was survival. You know, it's interesting because like he, like when I, growing up when my dad told me that he was raised on a farm i just thought wow that's a lucrative business because here in riley county there are like a lot of farms and and when i look and i see like these big machines as a kid you just think wow they must be rich right now as an adult i know that's not the case when i learned that my dad it was for survival Mm -hmm. you know the food that they harvested was all for survival i was like wow this this changes it and so you know, but my dad never gave up on that dream. And so then he decided that, you know what, I want more. I mm. want more. I want better. And he heard about this country called the United States of America. Put all of his money into coming into America illegally. Unfortunately, mm, mm-hmm. uh, but at that point, there was no other choice for
0: him. Yeah, an undoc- um, story of an undocumented immigrant. You know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think a, uh, another reason why he wanted to come to this country was because he wanted to pursue his his dream of being an artist, and he mm-hmm. knew that being raised in his family that that probably would not happen. And so, when he came here, he thought, he thought that's what he was going to do, but he couldn't do it because for all the reasons I said earlier is that right. like, even though this country says that this is for opportunity for all to be able to pursue their dreams, not really for immigrants. And so right. my dad had to do what he did back in China. And that is to, you know, work 90 hours a week and, and make enough money just to be able to feed himself. Mm-hmm. And so my dad met my mom in New York city, Chinatown, Manhattan, and my dad his entrepreneurial spirit he wanted to own his own business Mm. and so seeing that new york city being very saturated he decided to go westward he first made his way to zanesville ohio and that's where i was born where my brother and i were born and he had a chinese takeout restaurant did very well until a bigger restaurant opened and so he had to close down pack up his bags and just went west again with no, really with no strategy other than I just need to find a different place. Right. And, and so then he got his map, went and, went and made it to Salina, Kansas. And there he opened up a Chinese buffet and mm. uh, did well. Uh, but then there was some mismanagement I had to close. By then, though, my dad's English was good enough. And he had developed um, a lot of relationships with people. And one person said, hey, there's Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, there's a property that is uh, that is available. You want to check it out, and in the Chinese culture, especially in my family, owning property means you made it. And mm-hmm. so My dad heard, oh, you can actually own the property that you operate your business on. Let me check that out. Another reason why he decided to make Manhattan, Kansas, home and to raise us here is because it reminded him a lot of his village. Mm, it reminded him a lot. That's very sweet. The 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 way people treated him, welcomed him here him in this community. He has always remembered that. And that's why, and now my dad being 53 years old, you know, he continues to say, we need to continue to reinvest in this community because they've done so much for us. Right. And so here I am running for Riley County Commission.
0: Amazing. And, you know, I, among Chinese communities, I would say, you know, shout out to all the people who are rooting for FUTSO and very excited to hear yes. that you're from Fuzo. Shout out also yeah. to Fuzo America, who also helped connect us. Fuzhou people, for people who don't know, are known for being incredibly entrepreneurial, hardworking, and a lot of the Chinese communities that are out in the Midwest actually are their Fuzonis as well because of this ability and desire to be able to explore and make it no matter where you end up in the United States, even if it's not a major Chinese city. So really props yeah. to that. And since we only have a few minutes left, I wanted to get to one of our questions from Caleb, uh, which is, you know, on our, all of our minds, really, how do we get Asian American voters to come out and vote? You know, the Asian American community is one of the least engaged politically, and you are someone who is, you know, really putting yourself out there and, of course, going beyond tokenism too. how do you get your local community to come out and vote?
2: It has been difficult. Even when I go canvassing, when I've knocked on doors it's a, and it's an Asian person and they actually know me from the Asian supermarket. Mm-hmm. I, 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 so to be honest, I thought it would have been easier to, to, to get them engaged in this process because of my relation, you know, me owning the Asian market and that relationship there. It has actually been incredibly difficult. And I think it's because Asian Americans, we don't like to tell anybody we're struggling. Mm-hmm. The idea that we struggle goes against what, um, how a lot of Americans see us because of the model minority myth. And so to get Asian Americans, especially, or Asians, politically engaged, I think there also needs to be a, a, a conversation about mental health, mm-hmm. about how it is okay to struggle, mm-hmm. you know, how it's okay to say it has not been great for me and that I do need help. And that's the part that is so hard. And growing up, that was a hard part for me is asking for help. I think knocking on the door and saying, "Hey, I'm here to help you." They're like, "Oh, by saying that, I think what what they hear, and what I heard when people say, "I'm here to help you," is, "Oh, you're not good enough. Mm, you're not mm, good enough, right?" Mm-hmm. And especially for Fujianese parents where they give up so much to come to this country and to ask for help that just that yeah. does not align with with their narrative. Right and, right. and and but the problem with that narrative is the fact that we are humans, mm-hmm. you know. I feel like, especially with Fujonis parents, and I think a lot of my Fujonis friends will relate to this. They're very robotic in what they do, <laughs> and they've been forced to do that. For right. A it's reasons, right? It's survival. It is survival. Right? Exactly. People ask me one question I get asked often is like, "How did your parents deal with racism?" Quite frankly, I don't think they ever did. Right. Because right. because when you're surviving, you're like, you know what? I don't give. I don't care what people say about me. I just need to make sure I make enough money to feed my family. And so I, 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 think, I think it's, and ultimately, it is also up to us kids to have those conversations. Right. I think that is how it's going to change is this generation, my generation, and you know, people who are younger than me having those conversations with our parents. And my hope is to be able to inspire Fujonese people who are watching this to have those tough conversations, because even though I talk about this relationship with my parents, It was tough. We had a Mm -hmm. lot of tough conversations. Um, And the only reason why I can do this is because of those tough tough conversations I had with my parents.
0: Right, and it's so meaningful, actually, that you're running for this position in response to a comment that, you know, in their generation may have just gone completely unnoticed or ignored, right? Like blaming Mm -hmm. Chinese people. For the coronavirus. And Fanny, in our last minute, I want you to be able to, you know, how can people learn more about your campaign platforms? How can people get engaged and support you? You know, I know that you're also doing this campaign in the middle of COVID. So that adds an extra layer of distance between you and the people who could be supporting you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you asking that question. So we do have a website, it's Uh, There you can learn all about my. Uh, platform issues, about how to uh, vote. Actually, on that note, if you go into my website, we have information in Chinese that you can share with your with your family if you want. We also have it in, uh, in Spanish and Hindi. Um, and so, like I said, you know, uh, we're all about language accessibility here. So we've got that available. You can also donate and, you know, $5 goes a
0: long way. Everyone, that was Fanny Fang, the sole female and Democratic candidate running for Riley County Commissioner in Manhattan, Kansas. Thank you for listening to this episode of Plum Radio. Our show is produced and edited by yours truly, Dolly Lee, and my co-conspirator, Joey Yang. We're hosting an exclusive screening for our Patreon subscribers of a new documentary film called First Vote, about first-time Asian American voters, from the left wing to the Tea Party, from Ohio to North Carolina. Our virtual film screening will take place later in September. So if you want in on this, and guys, you definitely want in on this, because I've seen this documentary and I know the filmmaker, it's very, very worth your time. Come support Plum Radio over at patreon.com slash Plum Radio. For just $5 a month, you'll be supporting independent media like us, and you'll receive exclusive invites to these screening events, plus monthly Q&A Zoom calls with me and Joey. So head on over to patreon.com slash Plum Radio. We're trying to reach 250 subscribers by the end of 2020. Make sure you send us your blessings over at hiplumradio.com. At and if you love our show, share this episode with a friend, encourage them to register to vote, and give our show five stars on Apple Podcasts because it really helps us reach new audiences. Until next Sunday, I'm Dolly Lee. See you next week for episode 20 of Plum Radio.